having critiques on the concepts you're coming up with, it's essential. Like you're just, you're not going to be able to design just by yourself and come up with something that's any good without having some feedback from people. There's no sort of rock star designer. Well, there probably is. But if you're if you're a designer and you're building, you know, UI, you need feedback on the usability and, and how it works. And so I think design critiques, you know, at least at levels, until recently were just one-on-one. -on -one. But I think you need sort of crowdsourced opinions. And so maybe what that means is actually there's sort of a minimum viable design team to have good feedback. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. When you work in a creative environment, the world of design, it can be really hard to put boundaries around. What are the constraints? How does it work? Well, our mental model of design, when we think about it, is designing a tangible product, maybe something you can pick up, you can hold in your hand. When it comes to digital products, the way you work is maybe a little bit different. You can't necessarily hold that thing. It exists on a screen. But when you think about the traditional process for design is typically thought as being in-person, very collaborative, whiteboards, post-it notes, you name it, all of these things everywhere. Well, when teams are remote, very much like Levels, and for us, we operate asynchronously, the creative process has to change, it has to evolve. So what does this mean from a tooling standpoint? What are some of the platforms that we use and the way that we document things internally? How do we collaborate? How do we do things so that we can focus on the deep work without distracting each other? So Alan McLean, who leads design, also side note, one of the Canadians on the team, he and I sat down and we talked about design, all about this process, the way that it really has evolved. Prior to Levels, he spent time at Fitbit, at Strava, at the New York Times, and most recently Google. And so the design process that he had used throughout his career very much had to change and evolve as he came into Levels. And the more that he has worked in this asynchronous and remote environment, He's found a lot of things that have worked really well for him. So as the team has scaled, we now have three different members of the design team. And a lot of these principles are holding true. There's a lot of benefit to being able to work very deeply on design. Think about it when you need to think, work when you need to work. But there's also a way of finding that space to collaborate as necessary so that you can get that sync time if you need it to transform ideas. Anyway, no need to wait. Here's a conversation with Alan. The idea of this is to talk through creative process in an async and remote environment. So without a doubt, and we've talked about this before, there's a time and a place for in-person design, full stop. Mm -hmm. Depends on what you're doing. Like the extreme example is it's really hard to like clay model a car through a Zoom call. Like that just doesn't work super well. But then other products, like a digital product, there's a case where you could say, well, maybe you can collaborate asynchronous and remotely. And so as an async and remote company, and you've done like so many different facets of design in every corner of the world, but they're two different worlds. So I thought it'd be useful to talk through like, talk through the differences of how does async 
and remote differ for the design process. And we can riff on some of these ideas of like where one is beneficial and where you can get away with the other. And then sometimes it is more efficient to be doing some components of it asynchronous and remotely. So that's some framing for what we can jam on. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's a really interesting topic. It's one, especially lately, because we brought two new designers on. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot more in terms of like collaboration styles and getting feedback. Um, and my, my general takeaway is that async is probably basically, basically what you said at the outset is async is only good if you know when to use it and when not to. And, uh, you know, I do get questions in conversation, hiring conversations around like, how do you do design <laughs> without being able to like quickly get feedback from people or do like a workshop or, or something like that. Um, and just through the course of COVID, largely discovered that a lot of design can just happen, can happen async or solo. Um, and then there's some parts of it that just absolutely can't. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to be able to have sync chats and go back and forth. Um, a lot of design is super organic and it doesn't really work to have all these comments and back and forths and looms. Sometimes you just need to get on a, on a phone call or a screen share and just walk through it. Mm -hmm. well, one of the interesting things is if we think of design as being iterative, like yeah. iterations within iterations within iterations, it's like these micro conversations of exchanging information. Like that is like one way of moving something for moving an idea forward and two people go back and forth and play a bit of tennis. And then mm -hmm. in, in, let's say this is a real time chat. doesn't matter whether it's remote or in person, but that is helping to go, Oh, this thing, that, this idea that we started with is now here. And then you can go do the work against it and come back and like do the next cycle. So that's one thing. What happens in a synchronous or an in-person environment on occasion, and this is where the deep work is that this is the dichotomy between both worlds. It gets really hard to be in an in-person and synchronous environment in a design world, like in any world, but in a design world where you go to do the deep work and then like Billy's tapping you on the shoulder again, you're like, you lose your train of thought. So it's like, it's yeah. harder to get in that state of flow. And I know that's one thing that when you did your think week, Gosh, it seems like it was like two years ago, but you did a think week relatively recently. Yeah. Probably yeah. however many months ago. And you came out and you're like, that is the the deepest design work I've been able to do in a while because yeah. you allowed yourself to go to that place. So it's like there's merit in all of it. And I think that the takeaway is like finding when and where to use the different levers. That's yeah. always the hardest thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's um like that was definitely the longest uninterrupted design work I've ever done. But there was also some chats, you know, during that, you know, periodically to, to help sort of pull the ideas along. Um, I, think, I think sometimes when you're alone, you can do things that wouldn't normally make sense or someone would immediately tell you isn't going to work and then you can, but you can keep going. And, and, and so the, the flip side of that is you can also get lost and it mm -hmm. can be hard to come back to what you need, the problem you need to solve. But on the other hand, <laughs> I mean, I'm so torn on that because it, it's both helpful and, and can also hinder your design because you can get lost and go on these crazy tangents, but you also need to have the ability to have a bit of a reset and come back to the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways it requires, you know, some discipline um, to do it well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, designing in a silo, it it's hard because designing in a silo, you can get to this really deep exploration, like really, yeah. really deep. But then sometimes it's hard when you are in that silo if you aren't yeah. having the conversations to like bring you back to reality is like your head gets so deep in the sand that you're like, what? what part of the world am I in right now? Because you, yeah. it's, but it's really good. It's from a creative standpoint, it's so engaging and stimulating because yeah. you just sort of keep going and constraints melt away. There's right. no, there aren't any constraints because everything is an exploration. So it is that balance of, of doing both. And I know that like you, what you touched on was this, this comes up in general is around being remote and async as a company. Like how do you actually do work? But it's different with design where I think in general, we've got a mental model of like design works like this. Like this is sort of people have like a general sense of the way the cycle works between um, the cycle works to do the work. And because we have such a different model, it, it's harder to, it's, it's very hard to communicate like what exactly it is. Like it is this, it's just sort of like it happens. Right. Yeah, so maybe yeah. like, let's go into that. Cause like, what's a good way of framing it? from what you've learned, um, how we go about actually doing that work. And then how do you, now that there are more team members, like how do we bring them into the fold so that everyone is maintaining our cultural values and the way that you can get great work done, but still like leaning into design needs iteration and collaboration to make it happen. Yeah, and it does. And, but maybe I'll just add one thing there that, um, that one of the hardest things to do, just like sometimes getting in a state of flow with design creative work actually means you're not doing any, you know, from the outside lens, traditional design work. Like it mm. doesn't all happen in Figma. Um, sometimes it's me riding my bike, you know, sitting alone mm -hmm. without being interrupted or, um, you know, walking my kids to school or something like that. Like, and when you have meetings interspersing those kinds of moments all the time, it gets really hard to just think sort of offline about a problem that you're exploring. So. Mm -hmm. It, you ask any design team what they need more of, and they usually say they want more exploration time. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's one thing about being async and being um, being remote that you can do a lot more effectively. Mm -hmm. um, now I forgot the question. <laughs> Just talking about maybe the the process, like <clears throat> how do we go about doing the work, especially now that we've got like three people on the design team that are working towards this because there's <clears throat> the, the bike rides an interesting thing. You can't make like calendar event going for bike yeah. ride to think about glucose game. Like yeah. you can, but then you're going to get on your bike like anything. And it's just sort of like stalemate with your mind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, no. you, you like you, you can't force that, but what you can do is carve out a, enough chunks like these four hour blocks where you're doing some things it might be message it might have been some like yeah. hand sketches on in your notebook could be anything and then you're like you know i'm gonna go for a bike ride right now and that just like something inspires the thought because of what yeah. you had like had for lunch a song you heard on the radio yeah. and then all of a sudden you saw some message and you're like yeah i'm going for a ride now and then all of a sudden that's the unlock but it's like mm -hmm. freeing up that deep work for your brain to actually explore yeah. The conditions are what you said, where it can't be sort of like meeting, break, meeting, break, meeting, break. Like that will never get anyone anywhere very quickly at all. I think there's actually like a lot of um, sort of subconscious design thinking and work that happens. And there's been times where I felt completely stuck and didn't get anything done in a day. And then I woke up at like one in the morning, went to my computer and 
cranked out a whole section, you know, like a big redesign of the Explorer section. Um, and it, you know, I felt like it was pretty good. And, but it wasn't, if I'd been struggling to just throughout the day to just chip away at it, I don't think it would have been nearly as effective. Um, that said, I think, you know, in the, in the design process, process we're probably where you do need, you need, do need a conversation is sometimes going through the details, like the really small micro details around design or look and feel. Um, and in, in those moments, not having a bit of an echo, you know, back and forth with somebody, it can be really hard. Um, so I, I think it's kind of a matter of figuring out when to bring someone in and when not to in a synchronous way. Um, like you get, it can be also really hard to stay in sort of a productive fashion if you get like a hundred Figma comments, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that could just be a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the key is having, um, you hear it in, it can be in design, business, it can be in anything, but people, when they are, when they're trying to do meaningful problem solving, maybe that's a good way of framing it, when you're trying to do problem solving is, having a thinking partner like it can be a design partner but the thinking partner that's somebody that you lean on consistently for reference like hey i want to gut check this thing hey i've been thinking about this like what's your feedback on it or like and that can be very asynchronous too you put this idea over i've been thinking more about like doing this thing Mm -hmm. can you think about it for a while and like that sometimes those are sync conversations sometimes they're async but like having that um that resource that you can lean on when you need to is so helpful to get stuck. Yeah. 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 I I think, um, you you know, actually it's kind of an interesting thing I've learned over my time at levels is that you remember, you might recall, I used to do those long looms of like general concepts and ideas and everything. And, and I do that for in progress work too. And sometimes in progress design work is just chaos brain. And so, it can actually kind of freak people out because you're showing stuff that is completely at odds with what you might ship or, um, you know, it's like creative process sometimes is just go really broad. Right. And, and so I think one thing I've learned over the years is that you've got a, you have to be probably disciplined in what you share too, because you've got an audience that doesn't always understand how to consume it. Right. Um, that's just all about like helping people give good feedback but also finding a way to communicate at the right time and in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keeping, that's the biggest thing with design is always keeping things so low res that the second they start to feel polished and people are like, oh, is this the finished concept? And you're like, no, no, chaos brain, chaos brain, right? So it's like sometimes making things like worse from a resolution perspective, like, well, I know I could like record a loom and show some of the Figma files, but like, that might feel too polished. So I'm just going to hold a napkin up, a picture of my napkin, and then people will definitely know that this is like not finished. That's always the thing of like, when t- it's great to show work, but knowing how to frame it to certain audiences. Because if you show a bunch of chaos brain, I like that that little statement is like chaos brain to a design crowd. They're like, oh, that's just Alan like showing some concepts. It's chaos brain, but you show it to somebody that might not have a design lens and they're starting to give feedback on the things that you're like, Oh, that's not even like that red button isn't yeah. even going to be there. That's nothing, you know? So, about it. <laughs> I, so yeah, I've, I've, I've got like, I used to do a lot of that too. I mean, I guess it really depends on your audience. Like, um, 
Oftentimes I find though that with a, an audience that doesn't have a lot of design background that if you show just wireframes, like you can't, if it's just a spectrum of like wireframes to high fidelity, um, it's hard to actually give feedback that is sort of, um, that is more actionable or that is um, really constructive. Because when people see wireframes, oftentimes they'll just be like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Uh, like, and so you don't actually walk away with a lot of, um, a lot of value sometimes. So I try to do the medium fidelity thing, but sometimes that doesn't work out. People get freaked out. <laughs> Let, let's go into this idea of how, so the first is rewinding in your experience of everything up until COVID, right? <clears throat> everything up until like remote world, new world, everything um, was in person as far as your design experience. So why don't we talk through synchronous in person and then we'll go async and remote and just talk through like some of the differences so yeah in in person synchronous in person synchronous environments what what sort of your your frame of reference in the way that typically works yeah um i guess what make, maybe what makes like a healthy design process from your experience and your perspective yeah i mean usually it's a lot of things like workshops and printing out your designs and putting them on the board. People can do dot voting and add comments. Um, sometimes it's sort of more of a pair design model that I, that I used at Fitbit, where you've got a product, product designer and a visual designer going back and forth and one sort of driving and one is you know, giving feedback, um, almost like pair coding. Um, there's a variety of different flavors. Of, and sometimes it's, of course, just head down, heads down time at work, although that's a lot harder. Um, you know, I think when COVID first happened, well, let me just, before I get into COVID, I think there's there's some real benefits to being able to do those sorts of things and get a bunch of different eyes on it at the same time and the coordinated workshop, like I've run tons of workshops in the past. I think what I have seen though, is that in a sync environment, oftentimes there's very dominant voices and mm. there's the voices that, you know, they're they're, they're usually very opinionated or they're very, you know, assertive in their point of view. And some, sometimes that can drown out the really, you know, oftentimes I look for the people that are the quietest in the room because they're the most thoughtful. And so sometimes those voices get diminished in person. Whereas when you're in an async environment or you're doing a lot of it remote, it can become, especially when it's async, it sort of levels the playing field. Um, and so I found that to be really helpful. Um, but anyway, continuing on with sync, sync time, you know, it's usually running these workshops, you're putting post-its on the wall. Um, very, it's actually fun too, because you're, you're breaking, you're getting lunch together. That's great. So they're talking about the work at lunchtime or, or whatever. Um, but it's also super inefficient. Like I remember taking these post-its, putting them on the ground, taking photos of them, transcribing them, um, taking photos of the ones that had the most votes or like dot votes. And that, that is painful. Going and getting these printed on foam boards. I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's nice to be tactile, but it's also pretty slow and inefficient. Um, and when COVID happened and we transitioned to these workshops, this was, I was at Google at the time, running workshops remotely, it was actually really, you needed a lot less time. You had, and also you were, you were documenting the feedback like in a Google slide, right? And so there'd be spaces for everybody. There'd be instructions that were super clear. You never really needed to repeat the instructions because they were right in front of you on a screen, um, a slide deck that you could look at. And then it started to actually get really 
actually much more productive. It was hard to coordinate across time zones, so that's the async problem, but I actually found workshops to be really efficient and really high value, um, you know, remotely. Yeah, because when you're doing that work, like the work of getting things printed and putting them on, the, you have a, you have like some treasure, you have this thing yeah. that is like, here is the artifact of my work. Yeah. And so it's busy and it feels productive, but if you actually break it down, you could have, there's the opportunity cost of like being able to now do the actual work, right? Yeah. Like you've right. gleaned all the insights, putting some polish on them so they're on the foam cart core board is probably yeah. like diminishing returns as far as like the investment as long as you've got good documentation good organization as far as like it's not just like a bunch of paper everywhere where it's like so right. hard to categorize and bucket the insights and say cool here are the core themes that we're building against like we're going to go design against these if it's just chaos it's chaos but like <laughs> having it on the foam core board as long as it's organized doesn't actually make it any better and so then you miss out on the time of which is like the nice thing about being remote and async is that like hey you've got this like now you can go and design against it yeah. so bringing it to remote and and async how have you and i know we haven't had to do as much of this because it's been relatively small as far as the way we've grown like there are more team members now but when you first started and it was like the team of one and then you'd have collaboration partners with david and with eng um how have you had to adapt some of those things into the this like different way of working probably the most different being remote was like table stakes um but async was not like remote being everyone experienced it with COVID async is not table stakes. That's like a newer concept for many of yeah. us. I mean, so again, the question is exactly how did, how did it evolve? Is that, is it, that's what you're looking for? Yeah, just sort of like, how did it differ? Right. So you got used to this, like this way of working in the design world and then bring it to remote and async. How, how did you have to, adapt some of these things as mm. far as like changing change like we talk about behavior change all the time from a consumer perspective but like sort of change some of the way that you work your own processes and your behavior um to achieve the goal that you like the goals that you wanted to achieve but it's like a way different way of working yeah it is yeah i mean actually i think it really improved my presentation skills um because i think sometimes you when you go back and forth with someone remotely just on a phone call you can boot them up really quickly. You can get give context. Um, and when you just do a presentation and you're walking through a design and you record a loom, you know, some of that can get lost because the screen's kind of changing and, um, you know, it, it feel, it, again, chaos. It can feel a little bit like chaos. Whereas what I, what I found that I needed to do was do a lot more of these sort of structured presentations. Um, and that actually helped clarify my thinking too. Like having a way, you only really know it if you're able to communicate it clearly. And so oftentimes I'd be building these, you know, these presentations for a loom and I'd completely change my idea of what it was going to be or how it should work because I could see it all in context. I was creating a narrative around the experience. Um, and in the past, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just like, someone would have stared over my shoulder or remotely, you know, in Figma and their little cursor would go around <laughs> and they'd add comments or whatever. Right. And, and so that, yeah, it's a much more um, deliberate presentation now that I think, yeah, really helps the design. Um, yeah. 
Man, it's it's hilarious. You <laughs> you painted a picture, which is so true. There's the we'll call it the in-person loom. And that's like very typical in a creative field. It is somebody, one or more people stand over your shoulders behind yeah. you and they look at your screen <laughs> while you talk about the screen. And yeah. it's hilarious because that is actually what people do. So you take a tool like Loom and you're like, oh, this yeah. is way more effective for the async stuff. But the thing too about that is that no one can interrupt you. You know, when you're yeah. doing a presentation, like yeah. someone can like, hey, hold up. Like, I want to think about that a little bit more. The next slide might explain why <laughs> it is what it is. But when it's a loom, they can record, they can. And and I think there's actually this subtle thing about power that happens in presentations where if you're just a viewer you're and you're listening to someone talk and you have really no control over what they're saying, say in like a live sync meeting, um, I think it can subtly mess with your feeling of control over what's going to happen or or the design. But when you give the, the viewer the opportunity to turn you up 3x <laughs> or pause it or go back and forth and add comments, it somehow empowers the viewer to give better feedback, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's, you, you realize how inefficient the, the in-person stuff is where if, assume, um, assume you're doing a loom it's just like a very fast thing that you want to, hey, I'm thinking about this concept. And it was like five minutes. It took yeah. you five minutes to record this and just go through these things. And you sort of like throwing it over the fence for anyone to give feedback to. Mm -hmm. That typically, not just from a distraction standpoint, like bookending it with like the 15 minutes before and 15 minutes, well, assume not before, because those things usually happen from a tap on the shoulder where you're like... Mm -hmm caught off guard, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. somebody throws you out of your chair and it's, you're like, what is happening? But those end up being these like 25 minute or half hour conversations because people sort of interject. They want to ask you more about that. And that's entirely fine. But you were interrupted from something that could have taken five minutes. And so you get so far out of that deep work mode that you yeah. were in that the work, I don't want to say suffers, but the work might not evolve to the point that it could have if you weren't interrupted. And that's like the nice thing about doing the loom, going back into this world, and you don't have to spend more than the five minutes or 10 mm -hmm. that you would have taken to record it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm a big loom fan. Um, it's, yeah, it's definitely improved the quality of my work. Um, and I think, but I think also it's worth calling out that, because even on the design team now, we're talking about like, there's the, there's the, you say you're just playing with a color palette or typographic treatments or something. Um, it can be quite costly to do little tweaks and little, you know, spacing changes and stuff in a loom. Like that's not always um, deep thought or deep thinking so much as it is kind of instinctual. Um, and so sometimes for that, you really need to just like drop a screen, get some feedback. Um, you don't need to record a whole loom because you're kind of waiting for that sort of ping pong effect or you're going back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, the, it sounds like the low latency design flow, if you want to call yeah, it that. Yeah, yeah. Like but you can't you can stay in a flow. You got to record a loom for every yeah. little tweak you're going to do, right? <laughs> yeah, the low latency back and forth with messages because then it feels less formal. It's just sort of like, yeah. hey, this and then that. And so and maybe that's a, a time, there's a time and a place there where, you are able to do something synchronous and screen share with someone else and sort of walk them through a thought process and they can yeah. give that the ping pong back and forth to 
uh, evolve the conversation yeah. to transform it to a different place. Cause you're saying, I don't know, something feels off with the padding here. What are you thinking yeah. about that? And then that way somebody can give that insight. Like, I think we need a little more radius on that. It, yeah. Like those little things help, especially people like everyone on our team is on the design team is senior. Um, so tons of experience yeah. and we'll have a lens, but it allows you to all, uh, evolve things to where you want them to be and have that like true mm -hmm. thought leader, true design partner to make things better. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think, um, there's, there's something about knowing when to flex that muscle. And, and I think actually there's a subtle thing here, um, is that sometimes you hate what you're working on. Like you think it looks awful and you might need just a little bit of validation. <laughs> uh, and, it can get kind of like, you know, the, the design, like the saying, like early, share early and often, right? Um, well, if you're not liking the way it's working, the, the least, the less you like it, the least likely you are to share it, right? And so, you know, having a way to kind of flex both is really important. So you continue to like maintain momentum um, and, you know, have some positive reinforcement and, you know, honest critique on what you're doing. That's table stakes. Yeah. The people in a creative field disliking their own work and being overly <laughs> critical of <laughs> table stakes. That happens. Yeah. But, I hate but, everything I've ever made. <laughs> there you go. It's always constant evolution. Um, before coming on board, was there anything that you were nervous about? Like having heard some of the things around, hey, we work in this this way. Was there anything that, any, any feelings that you thought like, I wonder how this is going to work out. I wonder how this is like, how am I going to do my work? Did anything cross your mind that like you initially had a lens on and have since changed or still feel certain ways about? Honestly, I was coming from a super sync place. So coming to levels, I had actually no concerns. It looked like a huge, um, you know, free up of my time. And it has been. So um, in, in that regard, I didn't, yeah, I didn't have any concerns. Um, I definitely hear some concerns when interviewing candidates who are thinking about joining levels um, or, you know, interviewing for a role and they wonder just how it could possibly be successful, um, which is actually an interesting point of, you know, because me coming in, I was like, no, no way I'm doing this anymore. <laughs> uh, but maybe, maybe part of it is like once you get in a rhythm and it feels you can get, once you can get in the right async rhythm, I think it can work really well. What's been different as far as like the the tools? So some of the tools that you would have picked up, one being Loom. Like if you went from highly synchronous meetings to Loom, are there any other tools that you've embedded into the design stack that you weren't using before and have been very beneficial? Um, well, yes, other tools, but not so much as it relates to like async or remote. Um, I mean, I do use observable a lot because I get some data and I need to visualize it to generate sort of a primitive to drop into a design. And I suppose you could use that async too. You can have people collaborate on it and work on it rather than some sort of local, you know, Python notebook or something. Um, so that's great. But that's usually just me. But I'm actually, well, no, I could share it with the team. I've shared it with folks like Josh and, and other folks like that before. So. Nice. What's been the experience with documentation in the sense that design for the most part doesn't follow, like, I mean, I shouldn't frame it this way. Some organizations 
have a deep documentation culture. Some functions typically have deeper documentation. Like let's go to the extreme. Legal is all about documentation. Like that is the goal of legal is like to make sure things are well documented. In the eng world, there's always the uh, there's always the mental model that like we could be documenting more, not necessarily at levels. We work very hard to make yeah. sure we are documenting, but a lot of organizations you'll hear, oh, talk to like Jimmy. Jimmy has the tr- tribal knowledge, yeah. and like that's not a good thing. Um, so it's that's there's a time and a place for that. But design is one of the, these functions that it's really easy to get away from saying like, yeah, we don't really need documentation because we throw things out as quickly as we make them. Um, but What's been your experience as far as like having this documentation culture and knowing like you can't just, if everything looks like, uh, if everything looks like a nail, you're going to like take the hammer to it, right? Yeah. No matter what, but some things need different treatments. So how have you taken this documentation approach and catered it so that it still works with design and you're not just sitting writing very long form memos day after day? Um, Knowing when to do that, when not to do that, and yeah, yeah. Um, I think oftentimes it comes down to the audience. Um, I mean, you, you and I have talked about this sort of lightly in the past, right? Like, I definitely don't nearly subscribe to the documentation culture nearly as much as as levels like typically would, because a lot of my work is visual. So oftentimes, rather than a Notion doc, um, which for a variety of reasons is kind of a problem for us because the aspect ratio is wrong and, and everything. Um, a lot of our stuff manifests as a as a Google slide doc or something, right? Or a loom. Um, maybe the one change is I often record that content in a loom or slides or whatever and reference back to it in Notion, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's kind of how we how I work typically. Um, I think, you know, actually this is kind of just an evolution of the team too. You know, the process wasn't structured in the past. Like it'd be me and David or me and Scott or um anyone on the team kind of going back and forth but now we're getting to a place where we have a brief we have you know some sizing on how long it's going to take what are the what are the design problems um some brainstorming and then transitioning to actually making it um which i think is really welcome like before that was great it was fun but also it's it's not really scalable like process and you need to document along the way to scale it so i think having in, in that respect, I think you're kind of a, right at the moment where process and documentation is probably going to change on, on design. Yeah, the, the part that's beneficial across the t- like across the entire company is the idea of having things that are well documented and thorough. And documentation, documentation being whatever form fits the function, if yeah. that makes sense. So, like. For design, you found leaning into the decks and the looms and everything has been great, but it's not it's not as easy as we scale the team to say, hey, well, we did those things, but then they just like got lost into the abyss because they were in yeah. some thread. So still having that warehouse or architect in, in a centralized database in Notion where assumed design team was at 20 people, mm-hmm. right? However long from now. Yep. And someone comes in and said, oh, like, I'd like to try this thing. You can go with well, three years ago or two years ago. Like, here's here's the deck. Here's like, we did kind of try that thing. Maybe we should revisit it. But here yeah. was the experience so far with doing this thing. And so that's the time and the place to say, 
keeping track of things. Like we always refer to it as documentation, but it's more of the matter of like keeping track of it in some way that is like referenceable in the future has like huge upside. And then like the other side of it is when a new team member like Victor just joined, he can go through like three, five, he can go through like some N number of decks deck slash looms that you're like hey check out these things and that'll get you up to speed on the last eight months and it takes him so much less time to onboard and then he feels invested in and sort of invested and aware of like the work that's been done to get from here to here because when someone joins they only see the point in time they don't know the historical work that's been done to that point it's it's actually something i've been thinking about um and I, i wanted to do this before victor joined but i was on break and didn't get a chance but I think there's, what I'd like to do is sort of monthly or maybe, you know, every two months document why things are the way they are. Like, because mm-hmm. there's so much rationale and, and dis- design discussion that happens. It doesn't always manifest in a Figma file um, or a deck. And, you know, talking about like zones, how do zones work? You know, there's like, how do they structurally work? But then why do we represent them the way that we do? Or, um, why do the graphs look like this in this context and different in another? There's a bunch of considerations that happen there. And we probably need to document sort of those design components in a more like rigorous way. So when you jump in, and because oftentimes this is sort of standard um, immune response for any designer, they join a team, they see all these components, the design system, and they're like, oh, <laughs> like what is going on here? Um, I, I don't think I've ever heard a designer say when they joined a new company, well, the design system is so great. I'm so, the, the typical thing is I inherited this terrible design system. And there's not much I can do because it's so bad. Um, <laughs> and I, that's, uh, that's really important to have like justification or clarification on why decisions were made. And then you can all work together to better solve it rather than feeling like it's an immovable, you know, block. Right. Yeah, man, that's, that's such an interesting thing because, so doing that, doing that isolated to, we'll say the, the function of product design eng, like, yeah, that makes sense. Like there's some history, there's some um, thought that goes into why these decisions are made, but take that forward. How many support tickets come in that ask, Hey, I want to understand, like, what does the zone score mean? How does this, like, how does this, why, why was this done this way? Like, help me understand. That happens frequently where people will ask questions, specific questions about product, and then there will be responses that the support team has. But new team members join. It's a lot harder to get ramped up on like yeah. why these decisions are made. So documenting things in that way, like huge upside across the team for anyone that would um, anyone that would be close to needing the lens on like the reason why we have certain yeah. certain things that are designed the way they are um, built the way they are in product. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's something that could you know be distributed in the, all over the place internally. Um, I, a user or new designer shouldn't necessarily have to ideally use the product to understand functionally, like use it for like two or three weeks to understand how it works. You know, you should be able to download that pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, definitely like a top of mind asset to create and could be kind of a fun, just rolling artifact of explanation on, on the product. The history and timeline. Yeah. So what, what's been given this, this idea of creative process in 
async and remote environments, what's been the most challenging thing? There's been a lot of benefit where you can get into deep work. But what's been the most challenging part of working in this way? Mm. Um, I think probably the most challenging is, you know, kind of this, that one-to-one bouncing feedback back and forth. Um, you do need that. And so not having that, um, it can be challenging. Um, maybe there's also just some, some practical stuff is sometimes it's not quiet. You know, when my kids were home during COVID, it was really hard to, you know, carve out quiet time to <laughs> record a loom, you know, but maybe that's just because COVID was hard generally for people with families. Um, it, largely it's been a big unlock for me. Um, I think, you know, crits, crits are really important part of the design process. I got to I got, I got to cut you off. Critiques, oh. crits, oh. critiques. Okay. People will not know crits. So okay. design critiques. Yeah. Design critiques. Yeah. Yeah. So design critiques, I think maybe this is a, this is a level specific challenge. Um, because there was up until recently, just me, um, critiques, design critiques, where people look at the work and have a, an eye, a design eye, and, and sometimes engineering and, and product people too, but having critiques on the concepts you're coming up with, um, it's essential. Like you're just, you're not going to be able to design just by yourself um, and come up with something that's any good without having some feedback from people. There's no sort of rock star designer. Well, there probably is, <laughs> but um, it's, it's awfully hard to come to a good place, especially in product design, without having other people's feedback. I think it's a little bit different than graphic design. Like you're gonna go make a poster, you're almost like applying your aesthetic to it. Um, but if you're if you're a designer and you're building, you know, UI, you you need feedback on the usability and and how it works. And so I think design critiques, you know, at least at levels. Until recently, we're just one on one, but I think you need sort of crowdsourced opinions to mm. really do a good job. And so, even just today, we had some back and forth with Victor and Brett on some design system changes. And it, I don't know, it was very exciting. <laughs> I was really um, thrilled by it. And um, yeah, so I think there's maybe what that means is actually there's sort of a minimum viable design team to have good feedback. And you can try to instill that into a company and we've tried, but so when you get a design lens on it, it, it becomes just a bit more potent and, and valuable. So that's pretty interesting. The minimum viable design team, because yeah, team of like <laughs> team of one person, then you don't get that feedback. F- feedback. Let's break it out. Actually feedback come feedback from people who have an objective lens when it comes to design yeah. is completely different than feedback that is a little bit more subjective and I'm not sure what I don't like about this, but I don't like this. Yeah. Like that's just, I mean, it's still feedback and there is value in it, but it's a lot different than somebody that has the design lens and can yeah. go, I know, like we talked about padding and the radius on a button and all of these things where starting to talk in design language, N of one, like doesn't exist. That doesn't work. Right. N of two, maybe there's not that, like what the numbers we don't really know, but like minimum viable being three is really interesting because then you get that extra perspective and it's not yeah. just sort of like two people trying to massage an right. idea. What right. that is, who knows, but it's it's pretty neat to hear 
how you've had that experience like early on so far and how it's evolved with Victor coming on board where it's like, wow, it feels like this different dynamic in a good way to make things yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to, I'm already like really optimistic that, you know, the, the visual design and the interaction design, the overall experience is going to dramatically evolve. Um, and there's something kind of nice about having people focused on, you know, it, we, we're, we're Swiss army nice, but having people responsible for a domain, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, overall user experience, um, actually kind of think of it sort of like a triangle actually, for, at least for levels that, you know, cause we're in health and wellness that, you know, typically you would look at it as a spectrum. You've got sort of on one side, you've got a visual designer, a UI designer, and the other side, you have a, you know, UX designer. And they're thinking about the overall relationship with the product and interaction design, visual design. They're thinking about how it feels and what it looks like. Um, but for us, we're trying to shape behavior. And so it's kind of this probably th- more of a, instead of a spectrum, it's kind of like three pointed. You got mm-hmm. someone dealing with sort of the, uh, the emotion little relationship, the joy, someone thinking about the overall architecture and then someone thinking about the look and feel. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they're stuck in just in those corners, but having like a domain that you really, you know, like a strength, like if push came to shove and the house is burning down <laughs> or whatever the metaphor is, you go to that place. That's, I think that's really helpful. And yeah. And the, the, the frame is that Brett does interact. I mean, everyone's doing everything and contributing to all aspects of it, but Brett's wheelhouse is interaction. Your your wheelhouse is the architecture. Uh, I'd say Brett is probably he, he's probably more like the joy and the emotional relationship. I'm probably like the architecture and and Victor's you know visual. We all can play in those places, but um, yeah. And and everyone complements each other because there's such di- for people that don't live in the design world. It's sort of like capital D design. It's just like you do the, the cliche is always like the graphic designer that we joke around. Like, so you're a graphic designer. You're like, not, I mean, sort of, I can do it, but like, not really. There's so many aspects to it. And so understanding like they're very distinct skill sets and distinct roles and to be world-class, like really, really good at each of them is its own challenge. And so we've got the best, we've got an incredible team of, of people that are thinking about these aspects of what we're trying to do every day, which is very important. Like it's a very, yeah. it's a very cool team to see all of this unfold the way that it does. So, yeah. Um, one thing to dig into. So, interesting to hear your perspective around advice that you might have for other designers or other teams that are struggling a bit with the process of maybe not async but remote because so many teams are remote now, right? Like that is a thing where large tech companies, large and small startups all over have said, Hey, we're now remote or we have some remote component. And we get these questions all the time about, about how do you work from a business or an ops standpoint? But yeah. what's, what would be some advice that you have or some takeaways for people that are thinking about how to do this better or maybe struggling with it where they're like, we've been doing this for over two years now and we just cannot figure it out it could be tooling it could be process it could be um mindset way of thinking but like what are some little things that have worked well for you i know blocking off deep chunks of time has been hugely beneficial which is a whole different conversation around company norms and the way that teams work but i mean this will sound a little pessimistic but i think some it's in their dna to be super sync and so it might not be possible for all companies to transition to that. Like, 
you know, Apple doesn't even use Figma. They use Sketch because they're, they don't want their designs leaking, right? Um, so we're kind of in the perfect sweet spot where we valued it from the very beginning. And so all the structural stuff we created sort of facilitates that. Um, you, so if you're in a company that's struggling to go remote or async, like it might require some larger reevaluations of how you think about, you know, work overall, not just for a design or product team. Like from the ground up, your tools have to re represent an async remote culture, I think. Some places you can't even record video, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't want to materialize a point of view that could potentially be on like a legal problem or something. So if you're in a situation like that, your prospects of becoming remote and async are probably pretty low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that becomes very, very difficult because the a ton of the value that from what you communicated and that you found has been in this idea of being able to record looms, being able to share things openly. And so the, there are some there are some principles that have to be in place. A foundation has to be in place to enable it. Yeah. But if people are if people are having challenges around it, they have to unpack it in the right way to find, yeah. right? And it doesn't have to be, hey, the whole organ, maybe part of it is like colluding in some fashion between a small group. Let's say a design team is five people, yeah. right? And the there aren't constraints in place that make the entire organization say, we have bureaucracy and we cannot do this thing. Um, but people, people who work in certain functions can do their sync stuff and like you're not going to change that but you can say hey like five team of five of us like let's collude to just say we're not going to like on tuesdays we do not message back and forth we do sure. deep yeah. work so it's like these these seem to be like little sort of like hacks or systems right. of massaging the levers where you can to get the benefit so that you can free up the space to go on the bike ride to be able to think sure. about the thing that you wanted to do yeah like i i mean one thing we've been talking about potentially for this sort of back and forth is, you know, maybe there's days you do it, like you said, or or maybe it, it only exists on your desktop computer, not on your phone. Like the phone is kind of this gateway to be working all the time or, or not have sort of private space to think about things. And so like maybe we, we make, you want to be bureaucratic, but um, establish some norms that ensure that you've got a clean separation, you know, um, mm -hmm. especially, I don't know, personally, I feel like a lot of my most creative work comes out in the times when I'm not at work. And so finding a way to separate it, I think is, is pretty important. Um, it's almost like indirectly improving your productivity. <laughs>